Thanks for joining us here at AG Kolkata. We are the church for the open arms and we serve in the city of joy, Kolkata. It is our desire to reach out to those in need and to be instruments of effective change in a hurting world. If you like to learn more about us, you can simply go to www.agkolkata.org. We hope that you'll enjoy today's message. God's word has power. It impacts our lives. And in some cases, such as in healing, we see instant results as a consequence of God's power. The power of God's word. But listen to me, friends. The power of God's word only benefits us when we believe it. That's how you received your healing. We obey it, act on it, and apply it to our lives. Yes? It's not a book of magic. It's a book which gives to us God's will, God's purpose, God's plan, God's command. And when we listen to those uh, commands and apply them, our lives are impacted deeply. We experience its power. Now, the commands in God's word, which are hardest to obey and to apply in our lives, have to do with relationships. Unfortunately, most of God's commands have to do with relationships. You know, all of the law is summed up in these two things, you will love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Two, you will love your neighbor as yourself. And Paul in Romans 13 says, in fact, all of the law is summarized in this, you will love your neighbor. And what he's saying is if your love for God is really deep enough, if it's real, you don't have to brag about it. I will see it in how you love your neighbor. In other words, I will see it in how you handle relationships. So God's command to love is perhaps the hardest to obey and apply, isn't it? Whether we like to admit it or not, and many macho men wouldn't like to admit it, all of us want to be loved. Yes? Some of you are not sure. I don't need anybody. Oh, but most of us, okay? Most normal people, let me put it like that, want to be loved. But all of us have difficulty in loving others. If you don't meet me after the service, I'll ask you to pray for me. I need your anointing. Now, this... Obedience to the command to love is hardest, but it's hard in general. It's hardest when it comes to the closest of all human relationships within the family. And especially hard when it comes to the marriage relationship. Marriage is the closest, most intimate relationship human beings are capable of. Which is why this it's precisely where Satan tries to hit us the hardest. Because if you fail there, if he's got you there, he's got you, period. You can go about you know, showing your love for others, but you haven't effectively learned to love those closest to you. You know, all the time you feel this is not real. I'm failing. You even feel like a hypocrite. Well, it's with this in mind that I'd like us to read together what Paul has to say in Ephesians 5 concerning God's word about marriage. What does God say about marriage? That's our topic today. But join me as we read together from Ephesians 5, 21 to 33. And I'm re we're reading it from the message version. Two reasons. One is because you are perhaps over-familiar with the other more common versions. And secondly, the message version actually trims it down to very practical, applicable language. So let's read together. Out of respect for Christ, 
be courteously reverent to one another. By the way, this is a blanket statement, okay? You'll find verse 21 is, in, this applies to all relationships, courteously reverent. And then from 22 onwards, he applies it first to the marriage relationship, then he goes to apply it to employment, slaves, masters, so on and so forth. So, bottom line, every Christ follower, this should be part of who we are. Courteously, reverent. Okay, 22 onwards. Wives, understand and support your husbands in ways that show your support for Christ. The husband provides leadership to his wife the way Christ does to his church. Not by domineering, but by cherishing. So just as the church submits to Christ, as he exercises such leadership, wives should likewise submit to their husbands. Verse 25 onwards. Husbands, go all out in your love for your wives, exactly as Christ did for the church. A love marked by giving, not getting. Christ's love makes the church whole. Did you get that? What is he saying? Christ's love is a healing love. Makes a church whole. Husbands, he, what he's saying to you is, that's how you should love your wife. In a way that brings healing, wholeness. Does it scare you? If you're not scared, you haven't understood. His words evoke her beauty. Everything, who's he? Jesus. Everything Christ does and says is designed to bring the best out of her. Dressing her in dazzling white silk, radiant with holiness. And that is how husbands ought to love their wives. They are really doing themselves a favor since they are already one in marriage. Do you get the point? He said, when you do this to your wife, you're actually taking care of yourself. Verse 29 onwards. No one abuses his own body, does he? No. He feeds and pampers it. And that's how Christ treats us, the church, since we are part of his body. Did you get that? Christ treats us as though we are part of his body. Husbands, wives are part of your body. That's what he's saying here. Whoa, scary. And that, this is why a man leaves father and mother and cherishes his wife. No longer two, they become one flesh. This is a huge mystery. And I don't pretend to understand it all. What is clearest to me is the way Christ treats the church. And this provides a good picture of how each husband is to treat his wife, loving himself in loving her, and how each wife is to honor a husband. The little joke I'm about to tell you is hacking. It's, it's well used, okay? So bear with me if you heard it before. But for those who, I hope at least a few of you have not heard it. A little girl was asked by a Sunday school teacher, what Jesus said regarding marriage. I don't know why they asked her, okay? And uh, little girl's knowledge of the Bible was limited. So her reply was, what did Jesus say about marriage? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. <laughs> you know why I use that? It's humorous when a little girl says that. It's also understandable if people out there don't understand the meaning of marriage. But it's a real tragedy when so, that there are so many Christ followers who understand so little about what God expects from us in marriage. What does God expect from us? Ephesians 5, in summary form, the passage that we read, this is the standard. What God says about marriage. What God says is marriage between believers should be a picture of the relationship of Christ to his church. 
chew on that and swallow it. Because I'm about to hold the mirror in front of you as I hold it to myself. Is my marriage reflecting, or how closely is my marriage reflecting the relationship between Christ and the church? I love this statement because I think it's not from the Bible, but it captures biblical teaching. It says, marriage is not a noun, it's a verb. Do you understand what it means? It isn't something you get. It's something you do. It's the way you love your partner every day. Again, this is something that needs to be chewed. And before you swallow it, make sure you chew it well. Do you see the misunderstanding? You know, we talk about marriage as a gift. It is a gift. And uh, to... People come to the altar and we say, and I now pronounce you man and wife, you're married, and you think, I'm married, it's, that's it. It's a wonderful gift of God. It's not a noun. Marriage is a verb. Something you do. It's not something you get. And it's the way you love your partner, not only on the wedding day, wedding night, the first week or the honeymoon or even the first year. It's the way you love your partner day after day, day after day. But did you get this? The do of marriage? Yes. And so there's, I want to capture it in terms of three do's this morning. Three things you need to do if... You want to obey what God says about marriage. You know, hear that clearly, okay? You don't have to do what I'm saying. But if you claim to be under the Lordship of Jesus, this is what God expects. And if you ignore it, you ignore it at your own peril. Number one, the first do, learn. You will notice all of the three points I give you starts with the word learn. Because it's a process. It's not like receiving healing one instant. It's something that you do day after day after day. We firstly, God wants us to learn to deepen your commitment. Commitment is a big word. But in the context of biblical marriage, it's based on a covenant that has God at the center. That is what makes it holy, sacred, that's why some churches even call it a sacrament. Because it is rooted, hear this now. It's not just an earthly arrangement. It's rooted on covenant love that is at the heart of the universe. The God who created the universe defines what that love is. And it was, it was his intention that marriage should be a metaphor, a reflection of the love that is at the heart of the universe. So he wants marriage to reflect that. His character, eternal character. But following the coming of Christ, where Christ showed us what that love is like, he says, now I want marriage to reflect how Christ loves the church, that's where the cliche comes from. Successful marriage is always a triangle. See, without the God factor, marriage is not difficult. It is impossible. Did you hear that? See, Pastor, but so many people who are not Christ followers are married. Yes, true. But the biblical standard for marriage is impossible to achieve without the maker in residence in your home. At the top of the triangle between you and your spouse. So very quickly, I want to just fill out what this commitment involves. Okay, I'm going to run through a few things. It's a, first of all, just a commitment to a common purpose. There are many reasons people get married, right? Some get married looking for security, looking for love, happiness. They want to start a family. 
Some, my parents told me, so, you know, pressure, social pressure. But here's the thing. For those of you who are married, it's too late to apply if you haven't done it. But especially for those of you who are not married, listen to me. Common purpose is absolutely critical to any successful marriage. It's foundational. And this applies not only to believers, it applies to any two people coming together. To be married without a common goal, vision in life can be hell on earth for the unbeliever as well as the believer. That's when two young people come to me and they, they or to one of the pastors considering marriage. This is the first thing. In fact, to me, the only thing I look for, whether they are believers or unbelievers or a believer and an unbeliever, what's your purpose in life? And of course, the challenge sometimes comes, and listen to me, young people, sometimes there may be a fine young girl or a fine, fine young man who you want to marry. It's critical to find out if she, he shares your ultimate purpose for life. Because your ultimate purpose in life has to be the bedrock of your ultimate purpose in marriage together, right? You see what I mean? If you, your purpose goal in life is here, her purpose or his purpose is this direction, guess what? You don't need to be a rocket scientist to know sooner or later there will be tug of war. So pastor, what is the best, what should be the common purpose, the ultimate purpose of marriage? It must be the ultimate purpose of life for any believer. What is the ultimate purpose of life for any believer? Finish it for me, to live for God's glory, right? Every Christ follower must have that as their supreme passion. Now, when you decide to marry someone who doesn't share that common vision, purpose, well, it's your choice. There's a risk involved. There's a possibility that over time, you may convince that person to share your purpose in life. It does happen. But if it doesn't, by the way, that applies to believers as well. There are believers, we've seen more than one occasion, my wife and I, young ladies especially, young ladies, Purpose in life is to live for God's glory. And then as time goes by, you know how parents have put pressure on young girls. Oh, get married, get married. As though singleness is a disease. It's not. They force them into a marriage with someone, maybe a believer, you know, just has the name John, Paul, whatever. But his purpose in life is to be the next Ambani or to be the next Shah Rukh Khan or in some cases worse than that. He's just, you know, this is just he's married a girl for money or just because she's got a profession that he can piggyback on and then sooner or later the parents regret it but then it's too late. I think you get the point, friends. Commitment to a common purpose. That's why Paul's words in Ephesians quoting God's creation mandate. This is why a man leaves father and mother, cherishes his wife. No longer two, they become one flesh. It's foundational. This is a union of spirit, soul, and body. So you cannot continue to live two separate lives. That's the point. You're saying, well, Pastor, I have my life. Of course you do. She has her life. Of course she does. How can we not live our separate lives? Yes, you cannot live separate lives because you chose to become one. And if you, that's the price of marriage. And if you're not prepared to pay that price, sorry, don't get married. Not only will you be making your life hell, you'll be making the other person's life hell as well. Second, commitment to a common purpose also means you must be committed to give your all to your spouse. It involves an exclusive relationship. Exclusive relationship. A unique relationship. We sometimes use the phrase sacred space. In fact, I'm actually thinking, Pastor Patrick, when we have weddings in future, maybe we should have a white circle, you know, white piece of cloth. 
to symbolize that and when the man and woman say i do this they they stand in that circle and everybody stay out no one else should enter that circle not only no work colleague or friend let me say this to you lovingly not not even parents in laws outlaws children no one enter that space you're saying pastor why are you saying that that's god's word not me your spouse gets absolute and supreme priority over every other relationship now if you're not prepared to do that think about whether you need to get married because marriage is literally surrendering all commitment also means because you giving your all to your spouse means that you seek your spouse's happiness and fulfillment before your own remember what i said what kind of love is this god's love right where do we see god's love demonstrated in christ how did christ love sacrificially selflessly so don't look surprised when god looks at us and says that's the way i want you to love each other incidentally that's why divorce is becoming so rampant brothers and sisters and marriage is so unpopular divorce is becoming rampant because people getting married don't understand what marriage involves marriage is becoming unpopular because people do understand what marriage is involved and are not willing to pay the price what is the price i'll tell you this people are becoming more and more self-centered what can i get out of this contract it's not a contract it's a covenant this is the way you should look at marriage god has joined our lives together and if you're not yet married this is the conversation you should be having god is joining our lives together he has some good qualities she has some good qualities he also has some imperfections so does she what are you trying to say pastor you know what marriage is marriage is god's love laboratory marriage is the place where god teaches us how to love really love that's why i say if you fail there you fail life because you'll never be able to love people outside the marriage seeking your spouse's happiness and fulfillment means every day what can i do to make her life happy what can i do to make his life happy now i do realize it's a risk pastor i am only thinking talking like that he doesn't care about me of course that's a risk and if one person does it it can be almost like a bondage but then if one per i'm talking about two people who claim to be christ followers okay so if you're taking advantage of your husband's sacrificial self-giving or your wife's sacrificial selfless giving then watch out because i may not be there the relatives may not be there but god watches and he keeps account especially if you claim to be jesus lover got it what i'm talking about not only can work it must work because it's god's formula if both spouses make it the aim in life not to seek my happiness but his happiness her happiness and that means eventually we are committed to be responsible stewards of our spouses actually my wife does a very good job of this sometimes when we do marriage workshop seminar she talks about this this morning there's no time but you know she does an excellent job of this you know uh, i believe it with all my heart god has given you as a husband or wife like all of his gifts involves a stewardship don't get scared but when you reach certain point the other side god is going to ask you what did you do the beautiful gifted women i gave you 30 40 50 60 years did you help her grow did you develop help develop her talents her gifts her skills did you help her reach her full potential for which i created her likewise to the woman how did you handle your stewardship of the man i gave you i had this plan for his life and i expected you to cooperate with me in helping him to fulfill his full potential but you know what he didn't make it because you were a stumbling block rather than a help i want to say this publicly 
uh, everybody knows I have a close relationship with my wife. You know, but one of the prayers she's prayed, she said, Lord, very early, before we were married, she said, Lord, I don't want to be a stumbling block to my husband's life and ministry. Before we were married, she prayed that prayer. I'll only get into this relationship if you can help my life to be a blessing to him. Needless to say, we try to do this, as take this as seriously as we can. But you know, at the end of the day, this deepening of commitment involves one very hard thing, and that's a commitment to change. Everyone say with me, change, change. Turn to your neighbor and say change. But pastor, you're talking about marriage and not marriage. Doesn't matter. Growth involves change. These young friends who went through RLJ have been changed. Raise your hand if you have been. Amen. That's right. Growth involves change. Once you decide to get married, you enter the marriage relationship for the rest of your life. You are committed to a life transforming journey. And guess what? Let me tell you from experience. Let me tell, me tell you from observation. When you are willing to change and allow the God in the triangle to change both of you. Every year you will grow and become better people. Your wife has helped you become a better person. I, some men would, I won't put you on the spot, but I want to say amen. Your husband has made you a better person. But you must be willing to, to. Okay, that's the first point only, friends. I won't spend so much time on the others. But the first to do is learn to deepen your commitment. Secondly, learn to nourish your friendship. Let me remind you, this was God's original intention in marriage. Genesis 2.18, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Helper, companion, friend. Any of those translations are legitimate. God created marriage to be the most important friendship for all. Some of you couples are smiling. You know what I'm talking about. Is your wife, is your husband your closest friend or at least your close friend? If he is just the person who brings provision for you to run the home and take care of the children, if she is just the woman who keeps house, cleans clothes, and bears your children, if your husband or your wife is not your close friend, you're missing the main point of marriage. Yes, of course, there are many obligations, duties, working, providing, housekeeping, looking after children, but God's main purpose is friendship. Friendship. What does friendship involve? Many things. At its heart is what I call intimacy, which every human being has the need of. Intimacy. And of course, part of that intimacy is sexual intimacy. I know in our culture, we are not used to discussing this publicly, openly, but it is an important aspect of intimacy in marriage. And by, fortunately, the Bible is very candid in this matter. In 1 Corinthians 7, Listen to what God's word says. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs. The wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband, and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. To his wife. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Afterward, you should come together Again, no, if we follow God's order, the maker's instructions, we won't have issues of marital rape and all that stuff that you hear about these days. It's all about a continuation of what I said before. Satisfying your spouse's need, putting your spouse before yourself, sharing God's gift with your husband, your wife. And God has ordained for that to be one of the avenues for growing intimacy in the marriage relationship, which again is part of that sacred space, that circle 
which no one should enter. But intimacy is not just about sex. It's about the time that you spend with your spouse, wife or husband, where you share life and aspects about life that you can't share with anyone else. You're absolutely open, vulnerable, express pain, need, because you know your partner seeks your ultimate happiness. She will find ways to encourage. He will find ways to comfort. He will find ways to come and strengthen you in your need. And we should never be afraid to express our need for intimacy. That's what marriage is all about. But you know what? That kind of friendship needs time. I think someone last week, the speaker said, God has given us 168 units of the most precious commodity on earth, impossible to buy, and yet costs you nothing. You know what that is, no? 168 hours in a week. How much of that do you give, spend with your spouse? I find it funny, you know, ironic. Before marriage, you can't spend enough time. Right? Hmm? Even in arranged marriages, okay, you and you spend time, you know, you may not even talk, but you want to be in one another's presence. You're on the phone, you want to talk, 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 talk. Parents say, how long you're on the phone, you still want to talk, talk, talk. Friends can be there, but you want to talk, talk, talk. And then even when you finish your conversation, you know how it is. So you, you, you please go up the line first. No, no, you go off the line. You go off the line. You spend five minutes just deciding who will go off the line first. And after marriage, you never have the time to talk and listen. Not even to pray together. Time. Spend time. You don't have to do much. You don't have to spend money. But spend time. I tell you, one of the richest parts of my life, the hours I treasure the most that I've spent with my wife, are you know what? The hours we have spent in walks, she will tell you, walk, just walking, just walking. On the very first year of our marriage, walking together, sharing our heart. You know, sharing, of course, I won't tell you what we talked. That's none of your business, but just building intimacy. And you know what that, I've already come to it. A heart. A friendship is communication. All of my years of counseling married couples, and Pastor Patrick and other Mina will agree with me, the main cause of marriage problems, 90% at least, is you know what? The root cause of marriage problems? Either poor communication or lack of communication. Either you don't talk or you talk not with words. Unfortunately, sometimes people talk with actions. Not just physical violence, but you know, you turn your back or you take the newspaper over your face. Or poor communication. If you do talk, hmm, hmm, right? And you come back from work tired and of course, uh, wife will talk, talk, talk. Hmm, and then you say, hmm, she says, what? I've already finished. <laughs> you know what, poor, poor communication? Wait till your husband relaxes. Ask him, hey, I need to share something with you. So it's a good time. Do that. If you're a homemaker, when he has a cup of tea or coffee and relaxed, let him finish the newspaper if he wants. But let him know that you want time. And husband, when she's talking, put the newspaper aside. And I'm coming to it in a moment. And listen. Listen. Many of us think communication is just about talking. Pastor, I, I keep talking to him, he doesn't listen. Maybe you're talking too much. 50% of communication is, 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 and I'm telling you that is one of the gifts that is the most absent in most human beings. If you find a friend who's a good listener, you know what? Hold on to him, her, don't let him or her go because it's very hard. T.E.J.X. talks about the art of listening 
as one of the fundamental, essential gifts in marriage, listen. And of course, communication is not just about even listening and talking, but your tone of voice, your volume, hmm? touch, body language. Communication is critical because it builds relationship. It communicates a sense of belonging and value. You know, it's a small thing when you put that newspaper aside or you turn your, or you lower the volume of the TV and turn and look at her and listen or him. What you're saying is, you're important to me. I value what you have to say. And by the way, if your husband has never done that, and he starts doing it today, don't take advantage, don't start talking for one hour at a stretch, okay? See, pastor said you must listen. That's not what I'm saying. You listen too. You listen too. You know, there's, I don't know how many of you have heard the name of Bill McCartney. It's a businessman who launched a movement called Promise Keepers. So the time when infidelity, unfaithfulness in marriage was rampant in North America. Bill McCartney says he was a very successful businessman, but his marriage was in shambles. He says the turning point in his marriage came when he heard somewhere that, listen to this very carefully, men, because I'm going to ask you to do something in response to this. Turning point in his marriage came when he heard, he learned, that the best way to know a man's character, not about marriage here, the best way to know a man's character was to examine his wife's face. Say that again. Bill McCartney heard this in a similar message. The best way to gauge a man's character, I will add my own interpretation, the best way to gauge a man's spiritual maturity, the best way to gauge the man's health of his relationship with God, is to look into his wife's face. Humble man. He responded to that word right away. Looked into his wife's eyes and found himself lacking. This is what his famous quote is. He realized that everything I have withheld, sorry, everything, read it with me, everything I have invested or withheld as partner can be seen in the face of my spouse. Everything I have invested or withheld from my partner can be seen in the face of my spouse. Guess what? Here's a man who took God's word seriously and started changing. Hear what I said? He started changing. He started listening. He started caring. He started looking to his wife's needs before himself. And sure enough, his marriage turned around. He became strong again. Started living for God's glory. And he started an entire movement across North America involving thousands of men, calling them to keep their promise, their marriage vows. That's why it's called promise keeper. Homework, men. Maybe you've never done it. And do it when she's not looking, okay? But sometime today, tomorrow, this week, look at your wife's face. What does it say about a state of heart? What does it say about a state of spiritual, physical, mental, emotional health? You're the high priest of the family. I say, but pastor, you don't know my wife. I don't know your wife. But I know what God's word says concerning this. I don't care who your wife is. God's word always works if you take it seriously. And of course, when we talk about nourishing your friendship within your family, within your spouse, make room in your family for singles, single people. Singleness is not a disease. I said it before. It's a gift. There are many whom God calls to be single. Many who, by Jesus was single, remember that. Okay. Jesus himself was single. And God is happy with a person who is single, a person who is in married state. But a person who is, and in the kingdom of God, in the family of God, in the church of Jesus Christ, singles should never be alone. Being single is not the same as being alone. You know why? Because aren't we a family? And secure families will make room 
in their home, singles, but I must close quickly. The third point, finally. What's the first one? Deepen your commitment. Learn to deepen your commitment. Second one, learn to nourish friendship, which is at the heart of the marriage relationship. And thirdly, finally, learn to grow through conflict. My time has gone, so I must run through this quickly. How many of you know conflict is a normal part of life? So if you've had conflict this last week, don't feel guilty. It's normal. Pastor, really? Yeah. As long as human beings are imperfect, there will be conflict. And you know what? Marriage brings two people very close together. And each have unique histories, personalities, baggage, all that. Here this potential for conflict is higher than any other relationship. In fact, a former prime minister of India once made this interesting remark. He said, if married people never disagree, they must be idiots. I say amen to that. There are all kinds of factors which contribute to conflict, internal factors. You know, when we go through disappointment or neglect, we feel neglected, a breakdown in communication, or hurt, so on. But there are also external factors, work pressures, in-laws, outlaws, finances, financial pressures, children. Conflict is inevitable in marriage. The real issue is allowing conflict to help us grow. And how we handle conflict can strengthen our relationship. That's what it's intended to do. But if we don't follow the maker's manual, the enemy gets in and pulls us apart. So I'm going to do two things very quickly in the next seven minutes. The first is list some long, wrong approaches to conflict. Four common wrong approaches to conflict. One is denial. What camels do, head in the sand, ignore, hoping it'll go away. Avoid dealing with the situation. Bad approach. Second, very closely connected, is what I call suppression. You feel hurt, you're upset, you try to be spiritual and you hide it. If you don't deal with it, two potential consequences. One is the volcano will suddenly erupt at a totally unanticipated time. And your spouses will wonder what happened. Another option is, by the way, if it goes on for some time, physical illness, you know, it can sometimes actually affect you emotionally, mentally, physically. So that's a bad approach. Thirdly, most commonly, approach to conflict is what I call punishment. You want to punish your spouse. And there are two ways this is expressed. One is silence, the cold treatment. You don't talk. You don't communicate. What's the problem? Nothing. And the way you say nothing, it's very obvious there is a problem. The other extreme, punishment response is what I call an explosion. Anger explosion, violence. And obviously what that does, it's a spiral. It, it makes things worse. It doesn't improve things. Incidentally, let me say, uh, in my book, any form of violent response, husband to wife, wife to husband is the most cowardly, degrading behavior any child of God can engage in. Please, if you have a problem with violence, you need to really deal with it. Repent, sackcloth and ashes, fast pray, come to the altar for prayer. You need deliverance perhaps. There's no way you can claim to be a follower of Jesus be violent with your spouse and justify it. Incidentally, if you're not aware of it, it's even a crime in the Indian Penal Code now. That's another story altogether. Please, there's no room for violence. Should be absolutely zero tolerance for violence in any marital relationship. Bad response. And fourthly, of course, separation, which is first emotional, physical, Withdrawal can sometimes then go to temporary separation and eventually divorce. All wrong approaches to conflict. How then, pastor, should we deal with conflict? I want to just give you seven tips. Obviously, this is not exhaustive, okay? But just, to, just something for you to think about, take home. First is, obviously, pray. Make it a habit to pray together. And when you have a habit of praying together, morning and evening or at least either morning or evening or at meal times, whenever it is you pray together, 
All is not well when you cannot pray together. That's a very good symptom that there's a problem. So when a wife or husband says, you know, I don't want to pray with you today. Maybe once is okay. But if it goes on for more than a day, you have a problem. Sorry, you have a big problem. You're honest because the Bible does say when there's a problem between husband and wife, God takes chutti. Doesn't hear your prayers unless you get right. I'll come to that in a moment. But secondly, avoid hurtful speech and actions. This is, of course, a natural re response to any kind of provocation, right? When somebody hurts you, you want to hurt back. And of course, after you hurt back, usually with words, you say stuff you regret, you shouldn't take, you shouldn't say. You know what we do after that? Blame game. First of all, you've said bad stuff you shouldn't say. And then you turn around and say, you know, I was never like this before I was married. You bring out the worst in me. How many of you have used that excuse? Don't raise your hand, please. There's too many. I have done it. Blame game. I was never like this before marriage. You bring out the worst in me, so it's all your fault, in other words. Reality check. Hello, are you listening? It was always there. Somewhere inside. It's always been there. It was already there before you got married. And God placed next time your wife says that to you or your husband says that to you in a better mood. Say, you know, God placed me in your life to bring it out so you can deal with it. You follow? Nobody can bring anything out of you that isn't already there. It's biblical. Jesus said that. You are not responsible for my actions but, or words, but please, you can't pin your actions, words on anybody else but yourself. Got it? Some of you are not smiling at me. Never mind. You're saying, Pastor can't help it. Well, try walking away and coming back later. That's the second. Avoid hurtful speech. Thirdly, learn to listen. I've said this before. This is the hardest thing in the world when we are upset to listen. We want to talk. We want to defend. Bible says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry. James 1.19. And I like how Proverbs 21 puts it. Watch your tongue and keep your mouth shut. Very spiritual, doesn't it? Bible can be quite blunt sometimes. Watch your tongue and keep your mouth shut. And you will stay out of trouble. Fourthly, you must learn to communicate feelings sensitively, not judgments. You know the difference? If I had known you were so selfish, I would not have married you. You're so lazy. Stupid. You know what, what those are? Judgments. Those are judgments. That's bad. That's wrong. It's not wrong to communicate feelings. It hurts me when you say that. That's feelings. You know, it disturbs me. This doesn't suit. You follow your feelings. That's allowed. Learn to do that. And you'll see that little things often make the difference between happiness and hell. Fifthly, this is oh so important. Read it out loud with me. Fifthly, fifth, 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 fifth. It's stuck, I think. Take responsibility. Read that. Take responsibility. To apologize, take responsibility. To forgive, be the first. What did it cost to say, you know, I should not have said that? You know you should not have said that. But you're justifying it saying, but he said that to me first, so it's okay. Why should I apologize? Huh? He is the one who wronged me. Why should I apologize? Why should I say sorry? Listen to what the Bible says. Read with me message, Matthew 5, 23 and 24. Read loudly. If you enter your place of worship and about to make an offering, you suddenly remember a grudge someone else has against you. Huh? I thought that's not my problem. No, you remember he, she has. Abandon your offering. Leave immediately. Go to this friend and make things right. Then and only then come back and work things out with God. Doesn't matter who's right or wrong. That's your marriage. Your one flesh. Take the high ground. Go to him. Go to her and say, you know what? Doesn't matter whose fault it is, but for my part in it, I'm really sorry. And if you're the other party, I was waiting for you to say that. No. No. That's not the thing to do. You have a 
fault as well. Maybe she was legitimate in saying stuff to you. You didn't hear her, him. Sixth, be willing to, say that again, Change. loudly. Change. Change. All of us come into marriage expecting the spouse to become what we want him or her to be, right? Don't admit it. Me? I'm okay. I don't need to change. Unfortunately, it's often a male chauvinist thing. Okay, let me be upfront. She married me like as though you are some, you know, fallen from the sky. You know, God's gift to the human race. She would not have found anybody better than you. She married me. She better shape up to my expectations. You don't say it that way. You think that way. Get off your high horse. And often we, want, we come into marriage wanting my wife to be my mother. Ladies, you want your husband to be the father. In some cases, the father you never had. Guess what? Reality check. This is your marriage, your family. You must decide together what you want your new family culture to be. Forget the past. That's why he said, leave your father and mother. Good and bad, let it go. You recreate your future now. Seventh, seek help. Nothing wrong in asking for help. The worst thing you can do is to bury your head in the sand and pretend that everything is okay. And here, by the way, onus is on husbands. All, I think, Pastor, you're blaming husbands all the time. First Peter 3, 7. Read with me. In the same way, you husbands must give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. Why can't I hear other voices reading with me? She may be weaker than you are, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Treat her as you should, so your prayers will not be hindered. Men, husbands, listen. You are the high priest of the family. God says, the buck stops with you. And your prayers will not be hindered. It doesn't say that about women, by the way. Don't take advantage of that, wives, okay? So if things are not right in your marriage, then all is not right between you and God. That's what the Bible says. Husbands, you need to do something about it. You better do something about it. So I'm, I'm done, friends. Let me close with how we began. Read it with me. Marriage is not a noun. It's a verb. You need to work at it. Learn to love your partner every day. Thanks for listening to this message from AG Kolkata. We hope you would stay connected by following us online. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram by using at AGC Kolkata. We would love to know how this message has touched your life. Please take a moment to share your story by emailing us at stories at agkolkata.org. Hope you have a great week ahead.